Chapter 34, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Mummies of animals in Egyptian tombs identical with species still living. As the advocates of the theory of transmutation trust much to the slow and insensible changes which time may work, they are accustomed to lament the absence of accurate descriptions and figures of particular animals and plants handed down from the earliest periods of history, such as might have afforded data for comparing the condition of species at two periods considerably remote. But, fortunately, we are in some measure independent of such evidence, for, by a singular accident, the priests of Egypt have bequeathed to us in their cemeteries that information which the museums and works of the Greek philosophers have failed to transmit. For the careful investigation of these documents, we are greatly indebted to the skill and diligence of those naturalists who accompanied the French armies during their brief occupation of Egypt, the conquest of four years, from which we may date the improvement of the modern Egyptians in the arts and sciences, and the rapid progress which has been made of late in our knowledge of the arts and sciences of their remote predecessors, instead of wasting their whole time, as so many preceding travelers had done, in exclusively collecting human mummies, Mr. Geoffrey and his associates examined diligently and sent home great numbers of embalmed bodies of consecrated animals, such as the bull, the dog, the cat, the ape, the ichneumon, the crocodile, and the ibis. To those who have never been accustomed to connect the facts of natural history with philosophical speculations, who have never raised their conceptions of the end and import of such studies beyond the mere admiration of isolated and beautiful objects, with the exertion of skill in detecting specific differences, it will seem incredible that amidst the din of arms and stirring excitement of political movements, so much enthusiasm could have been felt in regards to these precious remains. In the official report drawn up by the professors of the museum at Paris on the value of these objects, there are some eloquent passages, which may appear extravagant, unless we reflect how fully these naturalists could appreciate the bearing of the facts thus brought to light on the past history of the globe. It seems, say they, as if the superstition of the ancient Egyptians had been inspired by nature, with a view of transmitting to after ages a monument of her history. That extraordinary and eccentric people, by embalming with so much care the brutes which were the object of their stupid adoration, have left us in their secret grottoes, cabinets of zoology almost complete. The climate has conspired with the art of embalming to preserve the bodies from corruption, and we can now assure ourselves by our own eyes what was the state of a great number of species three thousand years ago. We can scarcely restrain the transports of our imagination on the holding thus preserved, with their minutest bones, with the smallest portions of their skin, and in every particular most perfectly recognizable, many an animal, which at Thebes or Memphis two or three thousand years ago, had its own priests and altars. Among the Egyptian mummies thus procured were not only those of numerous wild quadrupeds, birds, and reptiles, but what was perhaps of still higher importance in deciding the great question under discussion, they were the mummies of domestic animals, among which those above mentioned, the bull, the dog, and the cat, were frequent. Now, such was the conformity of the whole of these species to those now living, that there was no more difference, says Cuvier, between them than between the human mummies and their embalmed bodies of men of the present day. Yet, some of these animals have since that period been transported by men to almost every climate, and forced to accommodate their habits to the greatest variety of circumstances. The cat, for example, has been carried over the whole earth, and within the last three centuries it has been naturalized in every part of the New World, from the cold regions of Canada to the tropical plains of Guiana, yet it has scarcely undergone any perceptible mutation, and is still the same animal which was held sacred by the Egyptians. Of the ox, undoubtedly, there are many very distinct races. 
but the bull Apis, which was led in solemn processions by the Egyptian priests, did not differ from some of those now living. The black cattle that have run wild in America, where there were many peculiarities in the climate not to be found, perhaps, in any part of the old world, and where scarcely a single plant on which they fed was of precisely the same species, instead of altering their form and habits, have actually reverted to the exact likeness of the aboriginal wild cattle of Europe. In answer to the arguments drawn from the Egyptian mummies, Lamarck said they were identical with their living descendants in the same country, because the climate and physical geography of the banks of the Nile have remained unaltered for the last thirty centuries. But why, it may be asked, have other individuals of these species retained the same characters in many different quarters of the globe, where the climate and many other conditions are so varied? Seeds and Plants from the Egyptian Tombs The evidence derived from the Egyptian monuments was not confined to the animal kingdom. The fruits, seeds, and other portions of twenty different plants were faithfully preserved in the same manner, and among these, the common wheat was procured by Delisle. From closed vessels in the sepulchres of the kings, the grain of which retained not only their form but even their color, so effectual has proved the process of embalming with vitamin in a dry and equable climate. No difference could be detected between this wheat and that which now grows in the east and elsewhere, and in regard to the barley, I am informed by Mr. Brown, the celebrated botanist, that its identity with the grain of our own times can be tested by the closest comparison. On examining, for example, one of the seeds from Mr. Sam's Egyptian collection in the British Museum, it is found that the structure of the husks, or that part of the flower which is persistent, agrees precisely with the barley of the present day, in having one perfect flower and the filiform rudiments of a second. Some naturalists believe that the perfect identification of the ancient Egyptian cerealia with the varieties now cultivated has been carried still further by sowing the seeds taken out of the catacombs and raising plants from them, but we want more evidence of this fact. Certain it is that when the experiment was recently made in the botanic garden at Kew, with 100 seeds of wheat, barley, and lentils, from the Egyptian collection before mentioned of the British Museum, not one of them would germinate. Native Country of the Common Wheat And here I may observe that there is an obvious answer to Lamarck's objection, that the botanist cannot point out a country where the common wheat grows wild, unless in places where it may have been derived from neighboring cultivation. All naturalists are well aware that the geographical distribution of a great number of species is extremely limited, that it was to be expected that every useful plant should first be cultivated successfully in the country where it was indigenous, and that, probably, every station which it partially occupied when growing wild would be selected by the agriculturalist as best suited to it when it artificially increased. Palestine has been conjectured by a late writer on the Cerealia to have been the original habitation of wheat and barley, a supposition which is rendered more plausible by Hebrew and Egyptian traditions, and by tracing the migrations of the worship of Ceres as indicative of the migrations of the plant. If we are to infer that some one of the wild grasses has been transformed into the common wheat, and that some animal of the genus Canis, still unreclaimed, has been metamorphosed into the dog, merely because we cannot find the domestic dog or the cultivated wheat in a state of nature, we may be next called upon to make similar admissions in regard to the camel, for it seems very doubtful whether any race of the species of quadruped is now wild. Changes in plants produced by cultivation. But if agriculture, it will be said, does not supply examples of extraordinary changes of form and organization, the horticulturalist can, at least, appeal to facts which may confound the preceding train of reasoning. The crab has been transformed into the apple, the sloe into the plum. Flowers have changed their color and become double, and these new characters can be perpetuated by seed, a bitter plant with baby sea-green leaves has been taken from the seaside, where it grew like wild charlock, and has been transplanted into the garden, lost its saltiness, and has been metamorphosed into two distinct vegetables, as unlike each other as is each to the parent plant, 
the red cabbage, and the cauliflower. These, and a multitude of analogous facts, are undoubtedly among the wonders of nature, and attest more strongly, perhaps, the extent to which species may be modified than any examples derived from the animal kingdom. But in these cases we find that we soon reach certain limits, beyond which we are unable to cause the individuals descending from the same stock to vary, while, on the other hand, it is easy to show that these extraordinary varieties could seldom arise, and can never be perpetuated in a wild state for many generations under any imaginable combination of accidents. It may be regarded as extreme cases, brought about by human interference and not as phenomena which indicate a capability of indefinite modification in the natural world. The propagation of a plant by buds or grafts and by cuttings is obviously a mode as which nature does not employ, and this multiplication, as well as that produced by roots and layers, seems to merely operate as an extension of the life of an individual, and not as a reproduction of the species such as happens by seed. All plants increased by grafts or layers retain precisely the peculiar qualities of the individual to which they owe their origin, and, like an individual, they have only a determinate existence, in some cases longer and in others shorter. It seems now admitted by horticulturalists that none of our garden varieties of fruit are entitled to be considered strictly permanent, but that they wear out after a time, and we are thus compelled to resort again to seeds in which case there is so decided the tendency in the ceilings to revert to the original type that our utmost skill is sometimes baffled in attempting to recover the desired variety. Varieties of the Cabbage The different races of cabbages afford, as was admitted, an astonishing example of deviation from a common type. We can scarcely conceive them to have originated, much less to have lasted for several generations, without the intervention of man. It is only by strong manures that these varieties have been obtained, and in poorer soils they instantly degenerate. If, therefore, we suppose in a state of nature the seed of the wild Brassica oleracea to have been wafted from the seaside to some spot enriched by the dung of animals, and to have there become a cauliflower, it would soon diffuse its seed to some comparatively sterile soils around, and that offspring would relapse to the likeness of the parent stock. But if we go so far as to imagine the soil in the spot first occupied to be constantly manured by herds of wild animals, so as to continue as rich as that of the garden, still the variety could not be maintained because we know that each of these races is prone to fecundate others, and gardeners are compelled to exert the utmost diligence to prevent crossbreeds. The intermixture of the pollen of varieties growing in the poorer soil around would soon destroy the peculiar characters of the race which occupied the highly manured tract, for, if these accidents so continually happen, in spite of our care, among the culinary varieties, it is easy to see how soon this cause might obliterate every marked singularity in a wild state. Besides, it is well known that, although the pampered races which we rear in our gardens for use or ornament may be often perpetuated by seed, yet they rarely produce seed in such abundance, or so prolific in quality, as wild individuals. So that if the care of man were withdrawn, the most fertile variety would always, in the end, prevail over the more sterile. Similar remarks may be applied to the double flowers, which present such strange anomalies to the botanist. The ovarium, in such cases, is frequently abortive, and the seeds, when prolific, are generally much fewer than where the flowers are single. Changes caused by soil. Some curious experiments, recently made on the production of blue instead of red flowers in Hydrangea hortensis, illustrate the immediate effect of certain soils on the colors of the calyx and petals. In garden mold or compost, the flowers are invariably red. In some kinds of bog earth, they are blue. And the same change is always produced by a particular sort of yellow loam. Varieties of the primrose. Linnaeus was of opinion that the primrose, oxlip, cowslip, and polyanthus were only varieties of the same species. The majority of the modern botanists, on the contrary, consider them to be distinct, although some conceive that the oxlip might be a cross between the cowslip and the primrose. 
Mr. Herbert had lately recorded the following experiment. I raised from the natural seed of one umbel of a highly manured red cowslip a primrose, a cowslip, oxyphs of the usual and other colors, a black polyanthus, a hose and hose cowslip, and the natural primrose bearing its flower on a polyanthus stalk. From a seed of that very hose and hose cowslip I have since raised hose and hose primrose. I therefore consider all these to be only local varieties, depending on soil and situation. Professor Henslow of Cambridge has since confirmed this experiment to Mr. Herbert so that we have an example not only of the remarkable varieties which the floras can obtain from a common stock, but of the distinctness of analogous races found in a wild state. On what particular ingredient or quality in the earth these changes depend has not yet been ascertained, but gardeners are well aware that particular plants, when placed under the influence of certain circumstances, are changed in various ways, according to the species, and as often as the experiments are repeated, similar results are obtained. The nature of these results, however, depends upon the species, and they are, therefore, part of the specific character. They exhibit the same phenomena again and again and indicate certain fixed and invariable relations between the physiological peculiarities of the plant and the influence of certain external agents. They afford no ground for questioning the instability of species, but rather the contrary. They present us with a class of phenomena, which, when they are more thoroughly understood, may afford some of the best tests for identifying species and proving that the attributes originally conferred endure so long as any issue of the original stock remains upon the earth. End of chapter 34, part 2.